0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand spanking new episode of So Important, where every few weeks we spend some time with individuals from all walks of life to talk about something interesting and important to them. Today, our guest is Washington Post Magazine staff writer David Montgomery, and we are going to talk about Space Force. The U.S. Space Force was founded on December twentieth, 2019, just a few short months after David's article appeared in the Washington Post magazine. It came from a presidential initiative to have a unified military branch dedicated to protecting U.S. assets in space, multiplying force capabilities in the event of conflict, and deterring a conflict in space from happening in the first place. To be sure, the United States has long had considerable assets dedicated to these missions, but Space Force consolidates these capacities into one unified force, essentially becoming the first new branch of the U.S. military since 1947. David has reported on all manner of things in the Washington Post since 1993, and he's been a part of the Post magazine team for several years now. I was intrigued by David's article because I have personally followed the issue of the militarization of space, and how to prevent it, for a very long time. And while some commentators are, for understandable reasons, skeptical of the Space Force, it seemed to me that there was a persuasive rationale for it, and it was something I wanted to explore. And that brings us back to David, who did such an excellent job bringing all points of view to the table. So,
1: David, let me welcome you to the show. It's great to be here, Monty. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, absolutely. And before we dive into the topic, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit
1: about yourself. And my first question is, what led you to a career in journalism? I was always interested in writing, and I realized... Quickly as a student, that I didn't have a great aptitude for fiction, um, and I was drawn to nonfiction feature writing, sort of uh, not necessarily hard news, just the facts, ma'am, but trying to tell true stories in very um, artful, literate ways. And I have been attempting to do that since the beginning of my career with varying levels of success, but it's um, it's been very satisfying trying to trying to um, sort of illuminate subjects that folks don't know about or put voices into the discussion that folks don't often hear from and. That's really what I love doing.
0: Uh, You have a luxury that many of your colleagues envy probably a little bit, which is the ability to delve into all manner of things in your current position.
1: Yes, it is a great luxury to be able to write four or five or 6,000 words on anything these days. Uh, There are a few other places in the Washington Post where writers can do that, but it's uh, happening less and less now across journalism. And it's um, an amazing privilege to just dive into something for two or three or four weeks, however long it takes to report it out and understand it, and then and then try and put it together in a, in a cogent and creative, hopefully, perhaps entertaining as well way.
0: It must be a great thing for a reporter. And perhaps someday we can do another show on the state of uh, print reporting, because yeah. that's another fascinating topic. Absolutely. What led you to this topic? Why did you decide this was something that you wanted to write about?
1: I'm one of those reporters who, between stories gets very nervous when I don't quite know what I'm going to be doing next. And I'm filled with notions, but uh, most of my notions aren't necessarily good story ideas. And I think it was actually an editor in August of 2019, when President Trump was making some moves to create the Space Force that an editor said, Hey, what what, what about sort of looking deeply into this and what it would actually mean if, if he's successful? Because I, I wasn't even sure this would ever come to pass. And my first Superficial take on it was this is completely ridiculous and I can't believe that you know we're having that this conversation um, uh, and and so I thought that that could be a, an interesting magazine story but then as I began to read more deeply about it and and talk to people about it uh, it, it suddenly dawned on me that hey um, the the president could be onto something here this is a this is a subject that we can take seriously and may actually do some good for the nation and I thought that is a provocative magazine story because it's sort of counterprogramming to what people expect uh, there there are, are many people who who think there's something nonsensical wacky unnecessary about this or or they're even threatened by it and to write sort of against that i thought could be very interesting and i felt as though i was coming this in great good faith because i had entered it with the opposite point of view and completely changed my mind as I as I did the reporting.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what the Space Force is and how it became uh, a priority, how it got on the president's radar, and the subsequent events that actually led to it becoming uh,
1: the law of the land. What the Space Force is, is the sixth branch of the military. We have the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard, and now we have the Space Force. For many people, including me, the idea sort of came out of the blue, but it turns out that within think tank circles and in various corners of the Pentagon, um, smart people have been thinking about space and military space for a long time, for at least two decades or more. And I trace the origins of the idea all the way back to 2000, when Donald Rumsfeld, before he became George W. Bush's Secretary of Defense, he led a commission on national security and space. And they said that at that time, the the United States was close to being vulnerable to what they called a space Pearl Harbor, which is a sneak attack, a sudden sneak attack that could take out space assets and really cripple the country. The United States currently has about 900 satellites out of I think there's a total of 2100 satellites orbiting the earth and they have come to be vital to almost all parts of our our society we all know about GPS there are 31 GPS satellites and not just our ability to drive around the highways but um, the banking system large parts of agriculture and and other sectors depend on GPS there are whole other sets of satellites that are useful for weather prediction and um, monitoring climate change and communications, and then on the military side, our our armed forces have come to really depend a great deal on satellites for not only warning about the, the launch of potentially the launch of nuclear weapons elsewhere in the world, but whenever our forces are in battle in a, in a around the world, there are satellites that can detect because of infrared uh, uh, heat, heat signals. They can sort of tell within a theater of battle if a missile has been launched and in and. American forces can be warned very quickly if they're being threatened. And so, you know, space has been a great upside for for American peacetime living and and its ability to um, fight a war if it must fight a war. But the downside is that it's a great Achilles heel that we depend so much on things that are in space that if those things ever go out for one reason or another, we'd really be um, in trouble here on Earth. And for Decades, we didn't have to worry about that because all those satellites were floating around so high in the air that they were really not under any sort of threat until the early 2000s was the first time another country that happened to be the Chinese demonstrated the ability to shoot down a satellite. They used a missile to shoot one of their own out of commission weather satellites. And American security officials took that as a demonstration that China now had the ability to take out satellites if it wanted to. That was in about 2004, and much more recently, in the last several years, India has demonstrated the same capability, and China has demonstrated the ability to send a a device much higher than that weather satellite. They sent something that almost reached the level where our most important satellites, the ones that are about 22,000 miles above the Earth, the ones that are looking out for a, a nuclear missile attack. China sort of developed demonstrated the ability to send something almost as high as those satellites, which got people very nervous. And in the meantime, Russia has, has just in the last year or two de- developed the ability, or at least shown the ability to have satellites that can maneuver around other satellites. They sort of creep up close to one satellite. And the worry is that what if they start bumping into satellites? So, taking this all together it showed that there was a potential vulnerability however remote because right now we're not at that level of hostility with any any great power but when an asset is so vital and it's undefended people realize that we had to start thinking about that as a potential weakness so donald rumsfeld issued this report back in in early 2001 about potential for a space pearl harbor we all know what happened about 9 months later on 911 and it was something completely different. It was hijackers with box cutters that launched the 911 terrorist attacks. It was not a s- satellite warfare and and the whole idea of a space force or space defense sort of got pushed to the side for more than a decade as 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 we um, became very worried about the the war on terror and folks who have continued to be concerned about space make the argument today or in the last couple of years that we took our eye off that ball so in in the last, three or so years, there's been a push to revive all of that thinking and um, strategizing about what to do to defend our space forces. And it should be said that the Air Force has had thousands of of space specialists working on this problem going back to the, the Obama administration, certainly, and probably administrations before that. There's been an entity within the Air Force called the Air Force Space Command. So we have had space operators working on this problem and thinking about defending our assets. What's new and what the Space Force is, is it sort of represents a maturation of these defense impulses. To make the Space Force uh, a quasi-independent branch of the military is to elevate that mission and allow the folks who are within that specialty to have slightly more budget autonomy, sort of develop their own military space culture, think more cohesively about the problem than they were able to when they were just part of the Air Force Space Command.
0: There are two lines of skepticism that you hear from those who have some concerns about this. One is, we already had a lot of this stuff in place. What do we really need a space force for? And I think you address that. But the second one would be with a space force you're essentially increasing the likelihood of the militarization of space, of some kind of conflict in space, and that we should be looking to try to de-escalate those concerns, which would be a different way to go altogether. So I'm just
1: wondering what you think about that particular uh, point of view. I wish that as the president created the space force, I wish that had also been a much more front and center part of his rhetoric and commentary on the subject, the idea of space diplomacy as it were and the idea of tr- trying not to get into an, an arms race and, and how, how, can we, how can we protect our assets and yet not encourage the militarization of space. And so, I, I sort of think of it in two ways. Number one, I go back to the creation of the Air Force. Once upon a time up to, to World War II, the Army was responsible for the Army Air Corps and that was how we did air warfare. And then it just became more logical to create an air force. And I don't think creating the air force necessarily meant that we wanted to create an air arms race. I I may, may be naive, but I think you can rationally, logically say that a space force would make us better at defending our space assets. But at the same time, can we have a space force and also be much more proactive in space diplomacy, be much more Transparent and have more outreach to, to folks like China and Russia to hopefully not encourage an arms ra- arms race. And I I can see that sort of even as I make that argument. I mean, I know what the some of the answers are to it, but I don't see I don't see an alternative. I th- I think China and and Russia and India are already creating arms, and they were they were doing that when we just had an Air Force Space Command. Uh, I think if there is an arms race, it's already sort of underway, and that making our approach to space a little more coherent and rational doesn't make the arms race any worse than I think it perhaps already already was.
0: Well, let's talk about
1: this question about
0: uh, is there more that we could have done or that we could do? It may be too late to stop an arms race uh, and the militarization of space, but may- maybe there are things that can be done to constrain
1: it or to put some limits on it. Essentially, there's, a, there's the, the sort of archetypal space treaty is known as the I think it's just called the Space Treaty of 1967. If you go back and read that, which I have, it's very idealistic and aspirational and thinks of space the way we all want to think of space as a, a benign domain where hopefully the world can advance shoulder to shoulder in exploration and, and enjoying space and using space for the benefit of all humankind. The language on, on weapons is, a, is a little bit loose. And I think it's been fairly interpreted as essentially banning nuclear weapons in, in space. However, it's silent on, on other weapons. It's wonderful that in 1967, so early in the space race, we were already thinking about keeping space peaceful. It's perhaps too bad that today when we have lasers and electronic devices and then, and satellites that can just act like ramming machines to ram into other satellites, None of that kind of activity is explicitly banned by this treaty. The Russians and the Chinese have proposed treaty language that the United States has always rejected and the United States gets criticized for it. The explanation that, as I understand it, is that the Russians and the Chinese want to uh, ban things that they don't already have and the United States' approach has been to argue for more, quote-unquote, transparency. In other words, let every country sh- show their cards on, on what exactly their space assets are. And when you ask defense officials, as I have, what are some examples of transparency, they're somewhat few and far between. So I, I'm not sure that we are we are proposing any better solution than the Russians or the Chinese. But the one example they do give, which I think is legitimate, is there's a website that's called spacetrack.org, which is where the Air Force is tracking every single human-made object orbiting the Earth. And so it's sort of open for anyone to look at all the satellites and assets that are up there, including all the space junk, which is which is a very significant problem. I think that spacetrack.org may be watching about 25,000 pieces of junk down to the size of a softball. I think I quoted someone in the story saying if 25% of the effort that has gone into creating a space force had also gone into space diplomacy, we'd be a lot better off. And I hope in our foreign service and our folks going into diplomacy, we'll get some expertise there because I think it's it's sorely needed. I think the issue is we should have a space force, but we should have a space force within the context of robust space diplomacy and rule of law and respecting where other nations are coming from and acting in good faith so that Russia and China and India and others can believe that that we're really just trying to prevent something terrible from happening in in space. What kind of reaction or response have you gotten to your article? It was very positive, including from one of the biggest skeptics who who i quoted at length a guy named bruce Gagnon, who's head of the global network against weapons and nuclear power in space he was happy that his views got aired in 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 two very big fat paragraphs and and, and his view is that the military is trying to set, space force is setting up the united states to be the gatekeeper for the privatization of space and that this will affect who who what companies have access to space and and so forth i'm not sure that's 100 true but i Took it as a good sign that people on all sides of it of the argument thought that I had been fair, even though you know, frankly, I, I come out in favor of a space force in this article. But I take seriously and believe there's a lot of merit in, in, in the cautionary red, uh, yellow flags that that some people are raising. There's a certain allure
0: about space, isn't there? There's a fascination that we all have, and it's it's out there. We're always thinking about space. It's something
1: that's had a certain appeal to the American psyche for a very long time. Absolutely um, I, I mean I feel it and and the first example we saw of that was with President Kennedy when he sort of saw space as a focus of national inspiration and, and American know-how um, when he in less than a decade he wanted us to get to the moon and and we've always looked to the heavens and wondered what's what is out there and wanted to go see for ourselves and I think President Trump part of his motivation uh, without reading his mind is that one of the most important parts of the work of space force and space specialists more broadly in his administration is the psyche. This is something that we can galvanize around. And and I totally agree with that. However, I have to confess to a little bit of melancholy. I think in the past, we thought maybe in this frontier, we could get past human nature somehow. And a space force is maybe a sign that That we haven't, and we we still have to think a a little bit defensively. However, I I met a lot of young airmen and and airwomen who are just dying to be part of the space force because they feel the mission and they think this is really cool and this is going to be this is specialty for the future. The space force is not going to be men and women for for decades, at least, riding around in rockets and fighting battles in space. All of the space specialists I met in the air force sit in their camouflage uniforms at computers and they're controlling satellites tens of thousands of miles high in the air, but to be part of a space force is is exciting for them. And I can understand why. And certainly more people in the Air Force Academy are are choosing space as a specialty because they feel the excitement and they want to be part of this. And that allure is there. And space force is is another component of that fascination with space.
0: Well, uh, very well stated. And I am glad you made the point about the uh, dedicated individual's who are supporting this. I think that's a, that's a critical point. It's an exciting mission. And uh, I just want to say thank you for spending some time with me. And I think we uh, maybe provided some illumination to the different perspectives underlying what is really a very exciting initiative, or at least has the potential to be. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And maybe we can talk again in a few years.
1: Definitely, Monty. I, I really right. enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you. You're welcome.